Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be discussing this fascinating new book from Cambridge University Press titled Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions, Information and the Politics of Belief, written by Dr. Aaron Baggett-Carter and Dr. Brett Carter, the latter of whom I have with me on the podcast today to tell us all about this book that does a whole bunch of things. Um, It creates a massive global data set of autocratic propaganda. It then does a bunch of interesting analysis of this and other sources to figure out how dictatorships, how autocracies use propaganda um, across different for different reasons and different ways. Anyway, this is kind of everything you could ever want to know about how propaganda works in autocracies and why. So, Brett, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about the book. Great. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks so much uh, for the kind invitation and for the kind words uh, about the book as well. Very happy to. Um, Before we get into the book itself, though, could you please introduce yourself and your co-author Aaron a little bit and explain why you wrote the book and why you wrote it together. Yeah, of course. Uh, So um, I'm an assistant professor of political science and international relations uh, at the University of Southern California, uh, a Hoover Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution uh, and an affiliate at Stanford Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law. Um, Erin is uh, roughly has has the same CV. She's also um, an assistant professor at uh, USC uh, and a fellow at uh, Stanford Super Institution and uh, its Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law as well. Um, so, you know, we we decided to write the book. Um, I suppose that, you know, it has its origins in a series of uh, conversations um, a few years ago when we realized just how differently uh, the propaganda apparatuses and the two parts of the world that we knew best, in my case, Central Africa, in Aaron's case, China, um, how profoundly different uh, they look to readers. Um, so the Republic of Congo uh, is um, uh, Africa's you know, third or fourth uh, leading oil producer. If one were to look at its oil production uh, on a per capita basis, it's on par with, say, Libya, Iran, Iraq, so you know, major oil producers. Um, <clears throat> and also uh, you know, due to uh, senior uh, or mismanagement by uh, senior officials, and the government routinely experiences fuel shortages. And, and it turns out the propaganda apparatus actually covers these fuel shortages, tells them or uh, tells readers about them, um, which is to say the propaganda apparatus routinely um, concedes uh, the regime's shortcomings. And, and obviously there are many, but it does so, right, to, to try to, um, you know, to build up some capacity, some kind of credibility to persuade citizens um, of useful fictions, right, you know, whenever it needs them. Um, by contrast, you know, I, I learned from Aaron whenever we began the project, um, the, uh, the CCP's propaganda apparatus looks entirely different to readers. Um, you know, for the most part, um, you know, it kind of has a, you know, a, a somewhat threatening tone. It's sort of, you know, overwhelmingly effusive. Um, and can you, the, the question that initially motivated the project is why, you know, why are these two propaganda apparatuses um, so fundamentally different, right? You know, why did they, um, you know, why did they tell uh, their citizens such different things? So that's kind of where the where the the idea for the book began. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think introduces a bunch of threads that we'll now sort of pull at through the rest of our conversation. Um, the first kind of being the answer to that question. Can you walk us through the theory that you propose in the book to explain autocratic propaganda? Yeah, of course. So, you know, so, you know, again, the, the core of the book is trying to understand um, why the world's autocrats employ such different propaganda strategies. So, you know, at, at least anyways, um, you know, our intuitions, you know, from, from Congo and uh, from China had, um, had sort of, you know, initially led us to believe. And, you know, our, our basic answer is that uh, the world's autocrats use propaganda for different reasons based on the electoral constraints that they confront, right? And so we kind of think of electoral constraints broadly, right? As sort of the, the extent to which um, autocrats are um, bound to um, the preferences of their citizens, right? Um, in, you know, in some autocracies, think, you know, think again, uh, China, um, governments, you know, are essentially able to tilt the electoral playing field virtually unlimited, right? Or in a virtually unlimited way. Um, their capacity for repression is so substantial that they're generally not bound by, um, you know, by kind of popular support. By contrast, right, in a place like the Republic of Congo, um, many of, uh, of Africa's autocracies, um, governments sort of can tilt the electoral playing field only to a degree, right? And this may be for you know, a range of reasons. Perhaps they're more bound um, to uh, kind of abide non-league democratic institutions as a result of international pressure. Um, they may be particularly vulnerable to international pressure given uh, reliance on, you know, on aid um, from foreign sources. You know, perhaps they confront, they confront vibrant civil societies. Um, they're able to kind of compel them to, um, uh, to kind of, uh, to sort of, you know, abide uh, electoral outcomes. And so anyway, so we sort of think of the world's autocrats as existing on this continuum, right? From essentially entirely unconstrained um, by, uh, by, uh, by elections, um, by kind of popular will, and on kind of the other spectrum, potentially quite constrained, right? So again, think um, Africa's post-Cold War autocracies. So anyway, so that's kind of the, our starting point. Then kind of secondly, we also think of uh, politics in the world's autocracies as being um, kind of fundamentally uncertain, right? And in particular, we kind of think of um, citizens as having two sources of uncertainty. The first is uncertainty about uh, the regime's performance, right? To what extent it's providing public goods, to what extent it's uh, um, you know, sort of making, making a good faith, uh, good faith effort to advance living standards. And then the second broad source of uncertainty that citizens have is about the regime's capacity for oppression, right? And this is something, you know, whether, um, you know, how effectively the regime will be able to employ um, uh, repression in the case of you know, some kind of um, uh, popular mobilization, right? Protests in the streets. Anyway, so, you know, citizens are uncertain potentially about both of these two things. And in our view, uh, the world's autocrats use propaganda broadly to um, to shape citizens' beliefs about kind of both of those sorts of uh, both of those sources of uncertainty. Um, I, I'm if helpful, I'm happy to kind of go through um, kind of the world of kind of non-binding electoral constraints uh, in uh, say the case of China. Um, <clears throat> so we so you know we sort of think of you know the world of non-binding electoral constraints um, as uh, 
autocrats having kind of an incentive to make this capacity for repression common knowledge among citizens. Um, and so, you know, there are, you know, obviously there are lots of ways um, that, uh, you know, the world's repressive governments can kind of signal their capacity for repression. You know, obviously you know, repressing citizens is, you know, obviously a, um, a good signal, right? But repression is costly. We know, for instance, that um, whenever autocrats repress citizens, um, that kind of uh, the anniversaries of those kinds of large-scale human rights abuses end up being focal moments for popular protests in the future, right? We also know that repression can elicit a backlash effect potentially, um, you know, and kind of, you know, create more popular frustration than perhaps um, it suppresses. Anyway, so, so, which is all to say that repression is potentially costly. And so in many cases, the world's autocrats prefer to use kind of a, a less costly uh, signal of their capacity for repression. And this is how we think of propaganda in the world of non-binding electoral constraints, right? So in a, in a world like, you know, uh, say Xi Jinping's China, uh, Uzbekistan um, is another good example. We show that their uh, sort of use of propaganda basically is like absurd. They're just kind of the, the word that we use in the book, right? So they, they broadcast information that citizens know is false, Right. And in so doing, because citizens know it's false, the regime is effectively telling them, telling everyone all at once that the regime's survival doesn't really depend on their support. Right. But rather on the capacity of its repressive apparatus to suppress them. So, again, so we think of. Um, in this case, you know, propaganda in the world's most repressive autocracies as a signal that uh, the regime's survival doesn't really rest on citizen support, but instead on the capacity of its repressive apparatus. Then, you know, in the world where um, electoral constraints are more binding, so again, think like uh, the Republic of Congo, um, other, uh, many of Africa's post-Cold War autocracies. In this case, the regime's incentive, you know, because of these binding electoral constraints, because the regime is um, to a greater extent, you know, kind of bound um, you know, is forced to be responsive to citizens. This has kind of broadly two effects. First, it you know compels them to provide you know, some amount of public goods to citizens, right? And it also kind of compels them um, to kind of use the propaganda apparatus to curry popular support. And we kind of think you know of these two effects as kind of broadly consistent, right? So whenever uh, governments are forced to provide some degree of public goods. Right then, that gives them the opportunity to mix fact and fiction. Right, so governments can essentially exploit the presence, exploit the fact that they provide public goods sometimes. Right, to use the propaganda apparatus to foster uncertainty about about bad news and policy failures. Right, um, so we think of this as as uh, as some, uh, you know as honest propaganda. Right, so persuading citizens of regime merits, um, you know, requires occasionally conceding policy failures. Conceding policy failures is costly, right? Because it provides a you know, potential focal point for protests um, and cues. But nonetheless, you, um, you know, in the world where electoral constraints are more binding, uh, we think of honest propaganda, right? So again, sort of, you know, mixing fact and fiction um, is an investment uh, in making sort of actual propaganda work to some extent. Wow, that was 
impressively comprehensive um, going through all of that theory. Uh, thank you for laying it out so clearly um, and giving me a number of things, obviously, to ask you to give us examples about because the book is not just theory. The book has a whole bunch of data in it. Can you tell us about what data and empirical methods you used after laying out this theory to then test it in real life? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so we, uh, you know, it was so you know, so obviously we kind of came to this uh, you know, theory over a series of lunchtime conversations based on uh, our experiences in China and Central Africa. Um, but you know, it was important to us, um, you know. In, empirically um, to subject the theory to you know, kind of as much scrutiny as we possibly could. So we collected what we think is the world's largest um, archive of propaganda and autocracies. Um, so our, uh, our corpus of uh, propaganda encompasses somewhere around 70 newspapers from about 65 countries. Um, and in some, about 8 million kind of dis, uh, discrete uh, pieces of propaganda. Um, we work in six of the world's uh, major languages, uh, obviously English, uh, you know, we're both native speakers, uh, French, Spanish, Russian, uh, Arabic, and then Mandarin as well. Um, and so finally, our, our total um, corpus of propaganda comprises about 88% uh, of the world's uh, population that lives under autocracy. So anyway, so, so we think that this is, you know, as sort of, uh, you know, encompassing a collection of, of propaganda um, as, as has ever been assembled. It is pretty comprehensive um, just from that list alone of the languages. So we now have the theory. We've got this massive data set to play with. Um, what then did you find in terms of autocratic propaganda. I mean, that's kind of, I guess, the big picture question for the next few questions underneath it. So if we take the theory and the data and put them together, and we look at just kind of one piece of that test, I'd love you to tell us about um, the fall of the Berlin Wall and what we can learn from looking at that. Yeah, of course. Actually, so, so maybe I can back up just kind of, you know, just um, you know, a thought or two. Um, so, so you know, once we kind of you know amassed this collection uh, of propaganda, then we first had to figure out how to measure it, right? So, I mean, so so obviously, you know, there are a number of empirical contributions in the book, you know, one of which was collecting this data. But then, you know, obviously, you know, there's a question of precisely, you know, how we how we go about measuring propaganda, um, and so so we kind of do this in kind of two broad ways. Um, First, we, we wanted to focus on uh, kind of um, pro-regime propaganda, somewhat narrowly construed, right? Um, sort of focusing more on, on the incumbent, the ruling party. And so in this set of 8 million propaganda uh, articles, we um, used a, a series of uh, natural language processing techniques to basically identify every reference to the incumbent and the ruling party. And we're able to do so with roughly uh, 85 to 90% accuracy. And then for every one of those references, in every one of those articles, um, we measure the positive and the valence of the words immediately surrounding the reference um, with uh, a series of tools from computational linguistics. In particular, there's something called, called the Harvard General Enquirer, which kind of basically 
um, kind of categorizes languages into sort of or categorizes words into positive uh, and negative valence. Anyway, so then we kind of measure the valence of those of the words immediately surrounding uh, every reference, and we sort of think of this as reflecting. Um, our view of propaganda, and I think you know, a view that's pretty widely shared, which is that propaganda should be should be thought of as spin rather than rather than lies. And then, kind of the, but the second way we set about measuring pro-regime propaganda um, is, uh, you know, it reflects the possible or reflects the notion that it's sort of you know unclear whether we should think of pro-regime propaganda, um, you know, as focusing exclusively on. Um, the you know the the executive the ruling party, or whether we should also think of um, pro regime propaganda as kind of encompassing kind of broader government action, right? You know, so to some extent, um, you know, this um, kind of ref- you know reflects some uncertainty about you know kind of like what the regime is, right? If we're trying to set out to measure pro regime propaganda, anyway. And so so we um, so this you know this kind of um, I suppose, you know, this sort of uncertainty as you know, to sort of, you know, how encompassing we should think of the regime as being leads to our second way of measuring pro-regime pop, uh, propaganda, which is by using um, something called multilateral topic models. So this is kind of a branch of um, machine learning uh, where we're essentially able to kind of train the computer um, to identify uh, whether a given article, you know, in a given language from a given country on a given day references government action by, you know, at sort of any branch of the government. And we're, again, we're able to, to identify <clears throat> content um, about government agents at kind of any level with about 90% accuracy. And so the, the broad result of the book is that as electoral constraints grow more binding, right? So think again, as, you know, as we kind of move from the world of Xi Jinping's China and Uzbekistan uh, under especially Islam Karimov to say, uh, Central Africa's autocrats, um, that the effusiveness of pro-regime propaganda declines pretty markedly. Um, so, you know, then I, so, you know, the question is like, well, you know, how, uh, how marked is the decline in effusiveness, right? I mean, so we've assembled, you know, all this data and we, you know, try to you know, figure out or we try to propose a way to kind of quantitatively measure um, the effusiveness of pro-regime propaganda across countries, right? But then, you know, how do we kind of convey, uh, you know, say like uh, one measure, or how do we convey um, kind of the magnitude of that decline? So in the book, um, we propose, um, or we kind of scale our measures of propaganda, uh, you know, using a partisan media outlet, that we think many readers will have a pretty intuitive sense for. Um, and that is uh, Fox News. In particular, we propose something called uh, the Fox News Index, right? So we, we compute um, the valence of Fox News' coverage of Republicans uh, over about a six month period. And I think this was 2019 or uh, 2018, 2019. Um, and then we computed the valence uh, of its coverage for Democrats. And we take kind of the, the difference in that valence, and that then becomes our Fox News index, right? And so what we find um, is that state-affiliated newspapers, I'm sorry, here, let me back. So what we find is that um, state-run newspapers and more constrained autocracies, 
So again, think, you know, uh, think Russia before the Ukraine invasion, um, think uh, autocracies in, you know, in Central Africa after the Berlin Wall fell. The difference between um, state and kind of pro-regime coverage um, in state, uh, in state newspapers and constrained autocracies is about one unit of our Fox News index, more pro-regime than, uh, than coverage um, of the government and state-affiliated newspapers and democracies, right? So we sort of think of, you know, like, uh, you know, again, um, the propaganda apparatus in Vladimir Putin's Russia before the Ukraine war, I, I'm sure that, you know, after the Ukraine war, my sense is that censorship has expanded, repression has expanded, and propaganda, uh, propaganda has, has increased as well. Um, but, you know, kind of roughly that difference is like equivalent to the difference in how Fox News covers Republicans relative to, to Democrats. Um, in a place like Xi Jinping's China, we find um, that uh, the propaganda apparatus covers the regime roughly four times more positively um, than Fox News uh, covers Republicans relative to, relative to Democrats, right? And so, anyway, so there's a lot of evidence that Fox News is, is quite persuasive, um, which is, you know, sort of, you know, it, again, kind of what we would expect, right? Um, Xi Jinping's propaganda apparatus is effusive. It doesn't really aim to persuade readers, but instead um, to intimidate them. By contrast, propaganda apparatuses uh, in a world of more binding electoral constraints, roughly similar to how Fox News covers Republicans relative to, relative to Democrats, which was, uh, and, and remind me, your question was about um, uh, China, and, China and Gabon. Right. Or, now that we've laid out kind of how we're doing all this, which is really helpful, um, how do we then see this in a particular instance of the fall of the Berlin Wall and how Gabon versus China talk about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, we obviously want to take um, threats to causal inference, you know, as, as seriously as we can, right? And so one, you know, one potential critique of the theory and of kind of the baseline statistical results <clears throat> Is that, you know, maybe it's not, you know, uh, binding electoral constraints that is kind of, you know, causing less propaganda, right? So, you know, but maybe instead, um, you know, propaganda is, you know, actually um, kind of loosening electoral constraints, right? So maybe then the argument is that, um, you know, so again, so if this kind of reverse causality is, this, is the case, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's the case, um, you know, that, um, you know, governments that employ more propaganda, uh, you know, are able to sort of you know, make their electoral constraints less binding. And so kind of the, in the book, the way that we um, try to rule out uh, kind of the, the reverse causality possibility um, is to exploit a, a rapid exogenous change uh, to electoral constraints in, you know, in, in a large set of countries. Um, and, you know, kind of one... Um, and trust kind of the, you know, the most uh, substantial kind of rapid exogenous shock to electoral constraints was the was the collapse of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989, right? So the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall unleashes a third wave of democracy. Um, you know this is felt obviously uh, across Eastern Europe, but no less in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Where um, uh, where proxy wars 
during the Cold War basically served to, to prop up client governments of both, um, of both Moscow and Washington. Anyway, so if one were to look at <clears throat> um, a map of uh, political institutions across the African continent in, say, 1985 relative to 1995, you know, obviously many of the continent's autocracies collapsed whenever the Berlin Wall fell, but virtually all that survived were essentially forced to govern with non-democratic institutions, right, with term limits, uh, constitutions, regular elections, opposition parties, you know, some amount of media freedom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's, it's difficult to get, um, you know, propaganda that extends back uh, to, you know, to the 1970s, 1980s, before, you know, before the Berlin Wall fell, before the third wave uh, was unleashed. Um, but for two countries, it turns out, we, we were able to find this data. <clears throat> Excuse me, the first um, is Gabon, and the second uh, is, CCP, is CCP China. Um, and uh, anyway, so we use you know, a series of um, statistical techniques to show, um, to, to, to show first that there's a sharp discontinuity in the propaganda strategy, uh, sort of, you know, in the level of pro-regime propaganda that the Gabonese government used before the Berlin Wall fall, before the, uh, the Berlin Wall fell, relative to after, right? So, um, so if you were to look at you know, our measures of pro-regime coverage uh, in you know in the Gabonese propaganda apparatus, you know, a year or two before the Berlin Wall fell, far different than um, than uh, than the nature of pro-regime coverage after. And so then we use something um, called a Bayesian change point model. So we we know that there's a discontinuity in its propaganda strategy. And so then we use something called a Bayesian change point model to help isolate like when precisely the propaganda strategy changed, right? So, so we can, in particular, we can sort of pinpoint uh, or we can use this statistical model to, to pinpoint the month when the Gabonese government's propaganda strategy changed. And, you know, precisely as, you know, as our theory would expect, you know, again, given our focus on electoral constraints, um, the statistical results suggest uh, that the propaganda strategy most likely changed uh, during the month of the first multi-party elections um, since 1967. And then perhaps secondarily, um, I should say that was in September 1990, secondarily, you know, the strategy could have also shifted maybe around March 1990, which was when um, uh, the Gabonese government called a national conference to basically kind of you know, outline um, the set of democratic reforms. Anyway, so, so, so as I said, the second country for which we have uh, propaganda data that extends back decades is, uh, is CCP China. In this case, I think it actually, we have data that goes back to 1946. Um, and, you know, and precisely as our theory would expect, we basically observed no change um, in CCP China, which, you know, again, CC, uh, you know, CCP China wasn't, wasn't exposed um, to... Uh, um, the uh, to kind of this rapid exogenous shock um, that uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, basically represented in Gabon. That is a fascinating example um, to understand kind of how the theory and the data and all the analysis comes through. So thank you for taking us through that one. Um, that obviously is kind of one type of news, right? The idea, as you said, of the massive shock, the potentially existential shock, but that doesn't come up that often. Much more frequently, um, any government 
has to think about, for example, economic and public goods and how those are going to be covered in the news. How does autocratic propaganda work on those topics? Yeah, so we... um... So let's see. We show that, and kind of, you know, the rate of um, kind of coverage that uh, you know explicitly focuses you know on a regime across propaganda you know, across propaganda apparatuses is is actually pretty you know pretty low, right? You know, uh, say 10, 20 percent, not really that high, right? By contrast, um, just five topics like the economy politics, sports, um, and then, you know, uh, international news, international kind of diplomacy, those five topics account for roughly 80 to 85% um, of uh, all coverage in the world's propaganda apparatuses, right? So, so yeah, so, you know, focusing on, um, you know, propaganda is, is much more than simply pro-regime coverage, right? It's also, it's also narratives that, you know, that we think of as kind of constituting um, the first draft of, of a country's history. Um, so, so in the later chapters of the book, we basically use our kind of core theory of um, autocratic propaganda to try to understand variation in narratives and propaganda narratives um, that the world's autocrats employ. And so, you know, one that you know, we sort of think of as particularly salient. Um, is is coverage of the economy of you know public goods think um, think like education <clears throat> uh, health etc. Um, one of my favorite examples of the book is uh, contrasting um, how uh, propaganda apparatuses in Central Africa relative to the Chinese propaganda apparatus uh, covered uh, the government or their government uh, economic policies during shocks, right? During crises. So, you know, for, for the Republic of Congo, the obvious economic crisis um, are, uh, are, you know, is the fuel shortage, are the fuel shortages that citizens uh, confront more often than one would imagine, you know, given the government status as uh, Africa's fourth leading oil producer. Um, and for the Chinese government, um, the global uh, financial crisis, um, Kind of constituted, you know, a, a similar sort of economic shock, right? That kind of undermined um, the government's claims or you know, potential claims to performance legitimacy, and and you know, so so again, exactly as as our theory would suggest, um, we show that when uh, governments that confront electoral constraints, so again, think you know, think Congo, whenever those governments confront <clears throat> economic crises. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of fully acknowledge in the citizens, um, and, you know, they, they include examples that, you know, would sort of, you know, from the, from afar, one would think of as, you know, sort of likely, um, to elicit even more popular, you know, popular frustration, right, to kind of make the government's failures common knowledge. So, uh, you know, so one excerpt of, um, you know, a propaganda article, uh, from Congo during a, during a fuel crisis, uh, was sort of recounting how citizens were lining up early in morning, early early in the mornings, um, you know, to try to get fuel, which you know, for the price of which was skyrocketing, right? So, anyway, so the the government kind of fully acknowledged um, the depth of the crisis. I mean, of course, it, you know, also you know, emphasized um, the government's uh, attempts to rectify the crisis, but it also acknowledged the government's um, so far its inability, um, or, you know, its inability to do so. By contrast, uh, the People's Daily, uh, which is the the flagship propaganda newspaper um, for the CCP, uh, you know, 
it's so the tenor, kind of the balance of its um, economic coverage, actually increased during the global financial crisis, which is to say that you know the government covered the economy even like more positively during the the global financial crisis than it did before, right? Which is sort of you know again you know in in our view a way of um, sort of telling citizens that the government's survival doesn't really rest on their support, but instead on its acquiescence, uh, on their acquiescence, right? Instead on its um, on its capacity for repression. I think the particular example you mentioned of um, covering things more positively during the financial crisis was absolutely fascinating to read. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was pretty striking when we um, when we found it. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, you mentioned kind of the big categories of topics that are covered. Um, obviously, the economy is one. Can you tell us about sports and how that turns up in autocratic propaganda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it turns up. It turns up actually pretty frequently. Um, you know, roughly twenty percent of all coverage um, you know, across the world's autocracies is allocated to sports. I should say, you know, by contrast, if one were to look at independent newspapers across the world. Um, those aren't the focus of this book, but we've um, but we've looked at some uh, in in other related work. The share of sports coverage is much lower, and and we think of this you know, we think of you know of sports coverage as to some degree potentially like a loss leader, right? In the sense that um, you know propaganda is effective when it's consumed, right? And so um, providing sports uh, coverage, right, things that people want to read. Um, is a you know is a way of attracting readers, um, and I should say that you know we we discovered that the world's propaganda apparatuses uh, include you know lots of other general interest things. Um, horoscopes were you know were were, were uh, one particular uh, favorite. Um, dating advice, uh, you know, relation relationship advice, um, etc. Anyway, so we sort of think of um, these you know across autocracies as. Um, you know, a way to um, kind of, you know, ensure that, uh, to attract readers, to ensure that propaganda, you know, is consumed. Um, so, so anyway, so that's kind of the, the first way that we, that we think of sports coverage, right? Sort of providing information that citizens want to consume, the better to, you know, to, um, to uh, expose them um, to propaganda. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, so, you know, again, you know, our, our basic theoretical prediction is that um, you know in constrained autocracies, sports coverage should be uh, subjected to the same kinds of um, you know admissions of bad news and policy failures that um, that uh, governments are forced to make in other uh, in other aspects of their coverage, you know, in, in the coverage of the economy that we just talked about. So, for instance, um, uh, Uganda's uh, Yauri Museveni. Um, you know, again, you know, one of the continent's you know longer, uh, longest-standing autocrats, but you know again, who has been um, who's relied on Western governments for development aid, for debt relief, and, you know in some cases for weapons. And so you know this kind of reliance, um, you know, to some extent constrains his ability to oppress citizens. And right, and so we you know we think of this as you know we think of him as being you know somewhat more constrained than. Um, you know, than other autocracies. Anyway, so you know, so in, in his propaganda apparatus, which I should I should say um, was uh, was run by um, a British citizen whose diaries you know actually you know look whose diaries read as though um, they were taken from the theory chapter uh, of, of our book, somewhat remarkably. 
Um, anyway, so his propaganda in apparatus is yeah, apparatus you know, kind of covered, um, you know, the government's failures to invest in Uganda's national sports teams. Um, you know, whenever whenever the Uganda national soccer team, for instance, fails to advance in the African Cup of Nations, um, it's the journalists uh, and its propaganda apparatus lay the blame heavily at the government's failure, um, you know, to to invest enough. By contrast, you know, in uh, in autocracies um, that are less constrained uh, by electoral institutions, um, who were fully able to secure themselves with repression, um, coverage of sports is you know as effusive and as absurd, um, you know, as uh, the CP, as the CCP's coverage um, of the global financial crisis, right? So you know, think of the dictator being cast. <clears throat> um, you know, as the, the champion of national sports teams, there's one article um, from uh, from the Gambia under Yaya Jama, which is, uh, you know, again, you know, at the time um, until he was toppled in like 2017 among the world's most repressive governments. Um, there was, uh, you know, one really great article. <laughs> great is there in square quote and scare quotes, I should emphasize, but um, one article where um, uh you know, one um, uh, one uh, one of the country's athletes basically ended up sort of, you know, crediting crediting the dictator um, for uh, for his personal accomplishments uh, on the uh, on the athletic field. Anyway, so anyway, so sports coverage um, ends up being you know as effusive as the rest of the coverage, uh, where electoral constraints are non-binding, but subject to the same kind of you know admissions of uh, bad news and policy failure, failures uh, as 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 economic coverage as well. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, again, kind of a really interesting look at something we may not expect to see or kind of have thought of maybe initially, um, but really does demonstrate kind of exactly what you've been talking about. Um, moving to a different topic covered, but again, kind of within the same general idea of the theory being proved in real life is... Um, why do autocrats, I, I honestly was kind of surprised by this, why autocrats seem to spend a lot of time talking about kind of how good they look internationally, how much they cooperate with other countries, even countries that like, they may not like that much. Why is this such a thing? Yeah, so so it turns out, so we sort of think of... Um, International, we sort of think of you know there being kind of two broad varieties of, of international coverage um, in propaganda apparatuses, and, and again, you know, international coverage <clears throat> kind of roughly accounts for somewhere around um, you know twenty say to thirty percent um, of all coverage uh, in in the world's propaganda apparatuses, right? And so then the, you know then the question is you know kind of you know how is how is how is international coverage shaped by the kinds of political institutions? Um, you know, that, that we really focus on in the book. So we think of international cooperation as um, uh, you know, the government, uh, a government's efforts to uh, engage international and engage internationally, right? So think diplomacy, think foreign affairs, um, et cetera. And we find that this international cooperation coverage um, is dramatically different uh, across autocracies. So think, um, you know, governments that are uh, more constrained by electoral institutions, the government is is cast as working with international partners uh, to address vaccine shortages 
which is which to my mind is is a great example insofar as it kind of reflects both um, the government's you know efforts at, at you know international cooperation, but also the extent to which the government hasn't yet ameliorated the same vaccine shortages as well, right? Um, anyway, so governments that you know that that, that confront um, these sorts of binding electoral constraints cover these partnerships to um, you know to to improve quality of life. Um, by contrast, uh, one of my favorite examples um, is Uzbekistan, in particular under Islam Karmov, um, who died uh, a few years ago. Again, one of the world's most impressive governments. Um, the propaganda apparatus made a habit of printing letters of congratulation from foreign governments immediately after elections, right? And so the, you know, the, the, these letters from foreign governments are kind of noteworthy for two reasons. First, the identities of the foreign governments. Um, you know, there are, you know, there are sort of, you know, putative letters, uh, you know, from the world's great powers, right. Who are then kind of cast as, uh, as supporting the Karmov government, which we think of as a, you know, as a signal to citizens that the international community isn't going to come to their aid, you know, if mass protests emerge, right? Anyway, so these letters are, you know, the congratulatory letters striking for, you know, for the, for, uh, the identities of their senders, but also for the breathlessly effusive terms, um, you know, that, uh, that the senders are, you know, are said to have used. So one in particular uh, was from um, Barack Obama. I have, I, I can't imagine that it was that it was authentic. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it was like so profoundly effusive, you know, uh, in terms of kind of trumpeting, um, you know, Obama's regard for, you know, for for Karmov, um, that you know, it was just, uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 at, at some point, so we, we wanted to do like FOIA requests, you know, to to verify whether. Um, you know, actually, you know, the the Barack Obama government had you know ever sent um, such a you know such an absurd letter uh, to Karmov. Um, but anyway, so we think of them as sort of basically you know a way of um, communicating to governments, uh, you know, or communicating to citizens that the international community won't come to their aid, you know, in case um, you know in case they uh, they come out into the streets um, in defiance of this sort of you know obviously fraudulent election. I cannot imagine, like, what would you even fill out in that form? Like, what would you say in that request? Please help us verify this ridiculous idea. Like, like, I yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, and I should say, so we, um, we, the, the, right. So, um, so propaganda apparatuses, you know, of, you know, especially repressive governments actually do this quite frequently. Um, so again, the Karmov propaganda apparatus. Um, would publish sort of testimonials from Western visitors, you know, from, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, ostensible, you know, professors of foreign universities, universities, you know, in, in America, the UK, <clears throat> uh, elsewhere in Europe that, you know, kind of trumpeted, um, you know, the Karmov government sort of, you know, political model. Um, I think it, it the, the Uzbekistan model of development. And anyway, so we, we tried to, um, you know, to, to, to track down, um, you know, professors, you know, and sort of, you know, other policymakers, uh, you know, that were, you know, that were quoted, um, in, you know, in the propaganda apparatus, uh, and we were, we were never able to do so anyway. So we're, um, yeah, we think that, uh, there's a lot of, um, 
we think there's, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, uh, creativity of you know falsifying falsifying foreign testimonials, um, you know, in propaganda apparatuses and, and you know, in the most repressive uh, in the most repressive environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, something I'd like to ask is less about kind of topic covered than um, you talk about the propagandist's dilemma. Capitalized letters for each of those two words. Um, what do you kind of mean by this? Yeah. Yeah, this is a great question. So, so we think of the propagandist dilemma as something that um, uniquely confronts propaganda apparatuses um, in the presence of more binding electoral constraints, right? And, and the, so, so again, you know, in the presence of binding electoral constraints, our view of propaganda is that um, you know governments are forced to mix fact with fiction, right? They're forced to concede bad news and policy failures to gain some kind of credibility, right? Some amount of credibility to manipulate citizens' beliefs kind of during moments of crisis, right? To manipulate citizens' beliefs when they really need to. And, you know, and again, in more constrained autocracies, think, you know, again, potentially, uh, you know, Putin's Russia before Ukraine, think um, Africa's post-Cold War autocracies. Kind of the, you know, the key moment of uncertainty, kind of the key moment of political tension is around election seasons. Right, election seasons, of course, are are recurrent. Right, um, you know, and you know, and so you know, again, as you know, as long as citizens know that you know the the author of the propaganda is its is its chief beneficiary, you know, then you know they may be inclined to discount it. Right, you know, especially when there's especially when you know the, the propaganda apparatus clearly has an incentive you know, to manipulate beliefs around election seasons. And so, in one of the chapters um, in the book, we try to figure out. You know exactly um, how you know how governments resolve this dilemma, right? And so, and so again, we think of this as <clears throat> as the propaganda dilemma. I mean, how to you know how to manipulate citizens' beliefs to some extent when they're expecting the regime to do so. Um, you know, so again, you know, one of the chapters um, focuses on that, and and um, so there we we combine. Um, you know, again, our, our data across countries, uh, with with again, you know, our our field research uh, in Central Africa and, and in Congo in particular. One of the things that that we show is, or so we document um, propaganda spikes, right? Moments of of increased pro regime propaganda relative to the rest of the calendar year, right? Um, and you know, we kind of define this, uh, you know, quantitatively in the book. But we essentially are able to show that virtually all of the increases in pro-regime propaganda um, in more constrained autocracies occur around elections, which is sort of, you know, again, consistent with our idea, you know, of um, elections as these moments of political tension, uh, of, you know, of political uncertainty, you know, when, when the government most needs um, to spend, you know, the, the credibility that it acquires, you know, at other times of the year. Um, and so then, so again, returning to, to this question, right? You know, how to sort of, you know, how to manage the propagandist dilemma. Um, we show that, um, you know, it's the the kind of gra- we show that we show that pro- a few things actually. First, pro regime coverage kind of very gradually increases um, as election day approaches. Coverage of <clears throat> of the opposition um, increases pretty markedly as well. The government's critic or the opposition's criticisms of the government are covered 
extraordinarily faithfully. So in some cases, uh, in you know, you know, across um, Africa's autocracies, it's exceedingly common to find uh, on the front page of the propaganda newspaper the EU's <clears throat> reluctance, or in some case, in some cases even refusal, to send election monitors for you know for concerns about the election's integrity. Um, also, you know, the government kind of conceding, uh, you know, opposition um, <clears throat> or covering opposition accusations um, of, <clears throat> excuse me, of harassment of uh, of its campaign rallies being blocked. Right. So anyway, so there's this really kind of like market, you know, markedly kind of even-handed coverage. This notion that you know the election could go either way. Right. The game isn't yet played, and we'll just have to see what happens. But then you know as um, as election day approaches, uh, you know the the propaganda apparatus you know, kind of casts itself as covering you know the size of campaign rallies you know for the opposition you know relative to uh, you know relative to the ruling party, and you know, then like very 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 gradually the the propaganda apparatus sort of casts itself as like updating its predictions uh, about the election's outcome you know, based on. Uh, you know, enthusiasm based on the size of the rally, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so there's this, it's sort of very, very clear, um, you know, that initially that, you know, the propaganda apparatus is trying to cast itself as like a very, you know, impartial arbiter of things. Um, but, you know, then as, you know, as sort of uh, enthusiasm, kind of differing rates of enthusiasm make themselves clear, then it kind of pivots to uh, kind of preparing citizens um to accept that uh, the election's outcomes kind of indeed reflect the will of the people. And I should say, you know, one tactic um, that is kind of particularly striking uh, is the extent to which um, certainly, in, you know, in Sub-Saharan Africa, I'm, I'm sure elsewhere, uh, autocratic governments kind of, you know, have puppet candidates that it kind of, you know, secretly finances behind the scenes, um, but that, you know, are these kind of like puppet opposition candidates uh, you know, who then, you know, kind of reliably, um, you know, suggests that, you know, indeed the election has been fair, that they're willing to, you know, acknowledge the results. And kind of, you know, the, the key thing of this kind of you know, puppet candidate strategy is um, uncertainty about, you know, whether these candidates are actual puppets. Um, anyway, and so, you know, propaganda apparatuses, you know, across uh, the set of African autocracies that employ these puppet candidates, um, you know, tend to, uh, to allocate them, um, you know, a pretty striking degree of coverage at, you know, immediately before the election, right? And and then in the immediate aftermath of the election, so, so sort of, you know, again, kind of generate, you know, some you know, foster, you know, some kind of uncertainty um, about uh, um, about the quality, about the integrity of the election. Anyway, so this is, so that's kind of what we think of as the, as the kind of the, the key propagandist dilemma. Um, and it's, uniquely acute, we think, uh, in the presence of more binding electoral constraints. So what about then if we go the other end of the spectrum, right? The autocracies that don't have election cycles to create propagandist dilemmas or kind of dictate what the propaganda calendar looks like. Is there a propaganda calendar in those sorts of cases? Yeah, there's a, this. This too is a great question. There's absolutely a propaganda calendar. You know, in the, in some sense, you know, we need to be you know a bit more creative about what the chief moments of political tension are, right? And so, um, one key moment of political t- uh, of political tension 
in the world's most repressive environments, um, especially, I should say, you know, <clears throat> whenever, uh, you know, in, in areas uh, where governments refuse to organize national elections, there, uh, in those places, the key moments of tension are often um, anniversaries, frequently of uh, failed protest movements or failed pro-democracy movements that the government suppressed. So think, um, think CCP China, right? The rate of protest um, around the anniversaries of failed pro-democracy movements uh, increases by about 30 to 40%. The most obvious one uh, is the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, right, on, on June 4th of every year. But there are, there are a number uh, of others uh, of these failed pro-democracy movements. The CCP knows, of course, that these uh, anniversaries or these political anniversaries are sensitive. And so the rate of repression spikes as well, right? Now, you know, we, you know, we sort of, you know, we think of um, propaganda around these, uh, these um, pro-democracy anniversaries is kind of, is driven by generally two considerations. And these are kind of you know, opposing dynamics. The first is that employing propaganda or potentially threatening citizens during these very sensitive anniversaries would potentially threaten them, you know, otherwise um, you know, secure their acquiescence, right? Discourage, deter protests, right? So again, CCP China, you know, effusive pro-regime propaganda, absurdly positive pro-regime propaganda, this, you know, in our theory, is a signal of the government's capacity for repression. And so a propaganda spike around a pro-democracy anniversary would aim to discourage protests, right, by signaling the government's capacity for repression. Now, that is, you know, the kind of the, the benefit to the government of propaganda. The cost, however, is that propaganda would draw attention to a moment that the government would prefer citizens forget. Right, and so we sort of think of this as um, a tension between memory and forgetting, right? Um, and so the pattern that we find in the data is that most pro-democracy anniversaries in CCP China are, um, you know, witness the sort of uh, the propaganda. Um, uh, I'm sorry, most pro-democracy anniversaries in CCP China elicit no response. Uh, from the propaganda apparatus, right? Would you, which again, you can think of, you know, as the government's interest in facilitating a process of forgetting, right? But there's one politically sensitive anniversary. There's one anniversary of a failed pro-democracy movement that the government knows citizens won't forget, right? That, you know, has a sort of outsized role in the public consciousness. And this is the Tiananmen Square massacre on, on June 4th, um, when uh, some new 2,000 uh, citizens in, in Beijing um, were killed. I think these protests you know, attracted, at times, some 10% of, of Beijing's total population. So, strikingly, what we find um, during the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre every year isn't really an increase in pro-regime propaganda, and, but instead coverage of its ongoing campaign of repression against the ethnic Uyghur population in Xinjiang, right? 
which is you know kind of um, cast as uh, you know kind of a, a threat to ethnic con interests. Um, you know, ca- sort you know, cast as uh, uh, terrorists. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, as as your listeners are probably aware, um, the CCP's campaign of repression against uh, the ethnic Uyghur population in Xinjiang um, now encompasses. Uh, a network of uh, detention facilities and has been um, uh, has been called genocide by by a range of um, foreign governments and, and international institutions. Mm-hmm. So the this kind of the striking thing about this ethnic Uyghur coverage is the extent to which um, it uh, emphasizes the government's sort of capacity for repression, right? And so again, so we think of this as um, you know a, a way for the government. Um, you know, if it can repress uh, ethnic Uyghurs to the extent that it is, then you know, the government is sort of implicitly signaling to um, to the urban population in Beijing via its propaganda apparatus that if they ever um, challenge uh, the regime's survival, you know, in, in the way that you know has happened previously, that they too would be repressed in the same way. Mm-hmm. So that actually raises. Um... Uh, a question obviously relevant to the CCP, but also more broadly, to what extent does propaganda discourage protest? Yeah, so the, the final chapter, or I should say the, the penultimate chapter of the book um, addresses this. And so we, we, we focus on, or we, we ask, or we try to answer this question in, in two broad ways. Um, the first uh, is by focusing on pro-regime propaganda, which, which, you know, again, we do in a cross-country setting, um, we find that um, pro-regime propaganda has a, has a pretty strong effect on reducing protests. But strikingly, we find that this effect decays over time. So, for instance, um, after uh, about, um, say, 15 days, something like half of the initial effect is, has gone. And, and by the time that you know, a month has elapsed, there's very little of the initial effect. But strikingly, you know, this temporal signature ends up being very similar um, to political, med- uh, political messaging um, in American politics, right? So, you know, so again, you can sort of think of um, you know, propaganda as a kind of political messaging and its effect on protest, uh, kind of, the, you know, it's, um, kind of the, the persistence of its effect on protest actually looks a lot like political messaging um, in, in democracies. Then the other way we try to go about um, measuring the effect of protests you know, is sort of you know, again um, recognizing that the propaganda isn't really just about coverage of the regime, but you know, is also in many cases um, about explicit threats of repression. And so, uh, so again, we focus on CCP China, um, where uh, the government um, routinely uh, advertises um, a social stability, uh, you know, a harmony. Um, narrative, so social stability you know, being um, you know, kind of widely acknowledged as, as code for ensuring uh, the survival of the regime. Um, and we show that uh, whenever um, the regime kind of uses uh, kind of social stability type code words, um, that, um, that the rate of repression, uh, the rate of protest uh, falls pretty dramatically. So, so our view is that um, you know, propaganda you know, is, uh, is actually quite effective. Um, but for you know different reasons in, in different settings, right? Uh, you know, in you know the presence of kind of more binding electoral constraints, because it's shaping citizens' beliefs um, about 
the the compa- or, you know, about um, kind of the merits of the government. Um, but in you know, in the absence of uh, binding electoral constraints, right, where where uh, governments can fully secure themselves with repression, you know, our, our theory suggests that um, kind of the um, uh, propaganda reduced protest because of the signal uh, of of the regime's repressive capacity. No, that's really interesting. Um, thank you for explaining that. Before we get into kind of uh, a, a, a more, even more direct linking between American politics and autocratic propaganda, I know that uh, the list experiments about China and the CCP that is included in the book may be of particular interest. Do we want to maybe talk about those a little bit? Yeah, 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 of course. Um, yeah, so, you know, so... You know, so as I've mentioned, you know, we sort of think of propaganda as working through kind of two different channels. One, you know, more persuasive uh, in terms of regime merits. The other is kind of a, you know a signal of, of a regime's capacity for repression. Um, many scholars, you know, I should say, you know, are kind of in, uh, many scholars have um, have viewed propaganda as, as a way to kind of shape citizens' beliefs about regime merits. Um, so you know, so to some extent, you know the. Um, uh, the, our kind of causal mechanism, um, you know, linking or in terms of, you know, uh, in the world of non-binding electoral constraints, CCP China, right, uh, you know, kind of uh, pro, or propaganda as signaling the regime's capacity for repression is to some extent, we think, a, you know, kind of a much more controversial view, especially among scholars, um, you know, who view uh, the CCP as broadly popular based on direct question surveys, um, and who therefore view CCP propaganda as broadly persuasive about regime merits. So if one were to, um, you know, just kind of, you know, ask Chinese citizens, you know, to what extent uh, they support the regime, something like 95% of citizens, you know, routinely suggest that they do, you know, in direct question surveys. Um, you know, our view is that these sorts of direct question surveys are you know, pretty inappropriate in more repressive environments, since citizens um, have incentives to falsify their preferences, right? To to conceal um, to conceal their private dissent. And so, um, kind of one way that scholars have begun to try to elicit um, private beliefs about things uh, is something called a list experiment. So the idea is that um, you know we'll kind of you know, divide. Uh, respondents into uh, into two groups. One would be a treatment group uh, and the other a control group. The control group would receive three sent, uh, three non-sensitive statements and, and are then asked how many of those statements they agree with rather than which, right? And so, you know, so they're, you know, they're given three non-sensitive statements. Uh, you know, they'll say, oh, I agree with one or I'll agree with two or maybe even all three. Right, so they're you know they're they're expressing preferences over the number rather than you know kind of a, a direct preference about um, a statement. Then the treatment group would receive those same three non-sensitive uh, statements, but then also a more sensitive statement. In our case, whether they support Xi Jinping or whether they support the CCP, whether they support kind of you know broadly the system of government, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then, right, and so, and so then you know, we'll ask them to, to identify the number of statements with which, with which they agree, right, rather than, you know, do, do you, are, rather than are you willing to, to, to say that you support or that you oppose 
the CCP government, right? And especially you know, in, um, in a world of online surveys, right, where digital surveillance is a concern, we, we think that you know, this kind of anonymity um, is really, really important. So what we find whenever um, we kind of use this list experiment technique, um, first is that support for the CCP is, you know, is far lower um, than, uh, than scholars sort of generally estimate via direct question surveys. So direct question surveys return approval ratings of like 95%. It's just using this list experiment technique returns estimates of like between 45 and 60%, right? Which is sort of you know, far, far lower um, than, what, than what many people would believe. But we then use list experiments <clears throat> to try to um, you know, measure whether CCP pro-regime propaganda generates an increase in kind of pro-regime views among uh, among respondents, and again, as our theory would suggest, we find sort of no increase uh, or no evidence that pro-regime propaganda actually generates you know, more positive views about the CCP, but that instead um, it uh, increases the share of respondents uh, who say they would not protest because they fear state repression, right? Which is sort of you know again exactly what our, our theory would suggest. So, so kind of most broadly, uh, you know, we think that you know, using uh, you know survey experimental techniques that you know kind of uh, ensure or help convey you know a stronger sense of anonymity is really really important. And whenever one does so, um, you know, in the most repressive environments, you know, then the effect of propaganda as conveying state the capacity for state repression really tends to show up in the data. Wow. Thank you for taking us through that. I think that'll be interesting to a lot of people. Um, As my penultimate question, I'd love to stay on the topic of Xi Jinping for a moment, but also um, extend it to the US. Because in the book, one of the things uh, mentioned is that perhaps Donald Trump's use of rhetoric can be better understood by looking at Xi's strategy in China rather than the more common comparison with Putin. Yeah, you know, so there has been, um, or, you know, in, in the wake of the, the January 6th, uh, 2020 um, assault on the U.S. Capitol, there was a lot of attention to um, you know, the notion of, of a big lie, right? The, the big lie in, you know, in Trump's case that um, the, uh, the 2020 election uh, was fraudulent, but there have been other big lies, right? There have been big lies. Um, you know that uh, the Orbán government in you know in Hungary has used to um, to justify um, you know, his dismantling of democratic institutions. Similarly, you know the the Law and Justice Party and Applebaum has covered uh, in Poland. You know, has, has sort of also exploited a big lie, um, and you know Trump's big lies started you know started early. Whenever um, you know his press spokesperson uh, you know referred to um, you know the crowds. Uh, in the capital that attended his not his inauguration, you know, as being sort of you know larger than any had you know, any that had ever been recorded, you know, even though there were you know sort of obvious photos, um, you know, showing uh, you know <laughs> showing that that was obviously not the case, even relative to you know Obama's inauguration four and eight years earlier. Anyway, so you know, so so you know, how should we understand these you know these big lies? We think of you know, so it's increasingly clear that. Um, you know, democratic backsliding occurs due to executive overreach, right? Whenever elected presidents attempt to dismantle um, the democratic institutions, 
that um, that brought them to power. Um, of course, you, they need to get a sense for whether um, their followers are you know are willing to um, to go along with the dismantling of those democratic institutions, right? Or, or whether their followers will punish them for it. And, you know, and, and frankly, in American politics at the moment, you know, it's it's not clear to what extent um, you know Trump will be punished. So we think of this, you know, we think of Trump's rhetoric, um, you know, in saying things that are obviously false, you know, as uh, you know, kind of conveying, um, you know, conveying to uh, to his supporters, you know, kind of gauging whether his supporters whether his supporters, um, you know, will will go along with his dismantling of democratic institutions, you know, whether they will, you know, to some degree, basically. Um, relinquish the truth, and so, and so, you know, in thinking about um, kind of the the magnitude of the lie, you know, that lie has much more in common you know, with how Xi Jinping's propaganda apparatus covers him you know, than it does with how Vladimir Putin's propaganda apparatus covered him, you know, at, at least before the, Ukra- the Ukraine war. So we think that you know, the the analog the analog for um, you know for Trump's rhetoric, you know, is you know, and this kind of big lie, you know, the analog is you know, is Xi Jinping. That's, I think, going to be an interesting lens for listeners to um, think about next time they read the news. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, especially given recent recent opinion polling in the US. No, exactly. Uh, before I let you go, would you mind uh, giving our audience perhaps a sneak preview of what you and Aaron might be each working on now that this book is done? Yeah, um, so we're, uh, we're finishing... Um, Second book projects uh, at the moment. Um, so Aaron is finishing uh, a book on um, the bilateral relationship uh, between um, Washington and Beijing. Um, the the kind of the core idea is that um, domestic, you know, kind of the, the domestic politics of the two sides um, has long destabilized the bilateral relationship. So um, in the case of, uh, of Beijing, you think. Um, uh, you know the government's incentives to um, to respond to economic crises that affect uh, its elite. You know its kind of core base of support. Um, you know by uh, scapegoating the American government in the case of you know in the case of Washington, think the extent to which you know uh, you know uh, members of Congress, due to uh, due, you know largely to electoral concerns, um, you know have resorted in you know, this sort of China bashing that you know is sort of you know aimed at um, fostering support among among their constituents. Anyway, so so again, you know, the idea is that domestic politics kind of destabilizes the bilateral relationship, and then the second half of the book, she shows how um, the two governments have kind of therefore sought to uh, to change each other's politics uh, from the inside, um, and it, and so the book kind of uh, you know kind of charts uh, how effectively um, they've been able to do so. Um, I'm finishing a book on um, politics. Uh, in Africa's post-Cold War autocracies, it's increasingly clear that um, you know the the geopolitical environment is changing. Right, uh, you know, there's sort of you know obviously a lot of talk about um, a new Cold War, a rising China, um, potentially you know, a, a Russia that is becoming more active across the African continent uh, via the Wagner Group. Um, and so you know, so as the the geopolitical environment begins to kind of shift from the post-Cold War world. Say that you know lasted between 1990 and say 2020. This seemed like the right time to kind of um, uh, for, to do kind of a 
um, an anatomy of you know how the continents autocracies have worked during this thirty year period. And so that's the that's the book that uh, I'm finishing at the moment. Both fascinating projects. Thank you for previewing them for us. Um, but of course, while you're finishing those both off, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Propaganda in Autocracies, Institutions, Information and the Politics of Belief, published by Cambridge University Press. Brett, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.